0: It started here in California, and it started as an Army antenna that was, in the late 50s, transferred to NASA when NASA was established.
1: The DSN, it harkens back to the very first spaceflight Explorer 1, our first satellite that followed on the heels of Sputnik.
2: But when you talk NASA, the Deep Space Network has been there from the beginning. They carry that legacy and that history of NASA with them.
0: We have over 50 missions, either that we're supporting or are committed missions for us to support. That requires a lot of assets.
3: NASA is an agency made up of myriad centers, programs, offices, contracts, all organized around a singular mission of science, discovery, and exploration. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory has a particularly interesting place in the agency. In fact, JPL predates NASA itself. To get us started, here's JPL's Kathleen Harmon.
0: JPL originated back in the 1930s and 40s as an offshoot of the California Institute of Technology, which is located in Pasadena.
3: JPL's origins began in the 1930s with the cutting-edge work in rocket propulsion of Caltech professor Theodore von Kármán, the same Kármán after which the indistinct boundary between Earth and space is named. Caltech graduate students moved their work off campus to a dry canyon wash, the Arroyo Seco, which later became the home of JPL.
0: And through those humble beginnings, Caltech did some rocket research, which eventually led to the Army getting interested in 1940s when World War II came up. And once the war was over, 1950s came and NASA was formed, that area was transitioned. To- in
3: 1958, after JPL and the Army Ballistic Missile Agency launched Explorer 1, America's first satellite, JPL transferred to NASA's civil space jurisdiction just two months after the agency began operations. As this is a podcast about the invisible networks that empower science and exploration, it shouldn't surprise you that a discussion of JPL immediately turns to one of the most iconic pieces of NASA infrastructure, the Deep Space Network. Along with programs like Explorer, JPL's Army antennas also transitioned to NASA for use by the newfound agency. Uh, My name is Brad Arnold, and I am the Deep Space Network Project Manager.
1: Uh, As the overall project manager, I'm responsible for the day-to-day operations and maintenance of the network, as well as sustainment and development tasks. Uh, It's largely a programmatic role, so I interface a lot with NASA. I deal with budgets, performance monitoring,
3: staffing, planning. uh, But occasionally I get to roll up my sleeves and get into some engineering topics. For starters, though, Brad can share a little about the Deep Space Network's origins. The DSN, it it harkens back to the the very first
1: Space Flight Explorer one our first satellite that followed on the heels of Sputnik. And since then, it's, it's been evolving uh, to keep up with the demands of science and of the missions and technology. Back in the day, we would uh, incorporate new antennas for very specific projects. So if the Mariner series of spacecraft were going out, we would actually develop a set of antennas, one at each complex, to satisfy that mission. And it was very much matched to the mission at the time. But as the number of missions increased and the the lifespan of the missions increased, each antenna was then taking care of multiple missions. And we've kind of grown along that that path.
3: Despite its origins, the Deep Space Network is as much a part of NASA as any other NASA center, facility, project, program, or mission.
0: We're all one NASA, right? right? right?
3: Organizational structures aside, we are one NASA. But a good place to start a discussion about NASA network support is with the folks at the Space Communications and Navigation Program, or SCAN, at NASA headquarters in Washington, DC.
2: My name is uh, Philip Baldwin, and I am the SCAN Operations Manager. I guess the more formal title is uh, Network Operations Program Executive. So what I do is I oversee the operations and maintenance of the NASA communications networks and ensure that we're providing that data uh, to the missions, getting data down, and ensure that the systems are running well and being reliable and proficient and having that great success that we've had over the years.
3: NASA organizes most of its space communications capabilities into two entities.
2: We have the deep space network, the near space network. The near space network is at Goddard, and they manage that, that network. Uh, For a Deep Space Network at JPL, they'll do all the technical management oversight and the planning and the budgeting, and just looking at the future vision of where Deep Space Network is going to go.
3: But before we look at the future, we'll look at the legacy of the Deep Space Network.
2: The Deep Space Network technically formed in 1963. And so it's been around, we're coming up on uh, 60 years here. Wow, time goes by fast. (laughs) So when you talk NASA, the Deep Space Network has been there from the beginning they carry that legacy and that history of NASA with them.
3: NASA's communications networks are the foundation of space exploration. The agency launches missions that capture immense amounts of data, including images, videos, and insights that lead to breakthrough discoveries. Those data are then transferred back to Earth over invisible links to NASA's global network of ground antennas. Here on Earth, scientists and researchers use the data to better understand our planet, the solar system, and the universe. But none of that would be possible without these communications networks. In this first episode of a season about NASA's deep space network, we examine the DSN's evolution as we overview its basic structure and capabilities. I'm Danny Baird. This is The Invisible Network. We choose to go to the moon in this decade. At
1: one small step for us. We have
2: ignition and we have liftoff. Hello from the children of planet Earth. Three, two, one, and liftoff. That's the machine
3: space plan. Touchdown confirmed. <laughs>
0: My name is Suzanne Dodd, people call me Susie, and I am the director for the Interplanetary Network Directorate at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and uh, part of that directorate, what's, what's uh, underneath it, is the Deep Space Network.
3: The Interplanetary Network Directorate oversees space communications activities at JPL. That includes deep space network operations and a host of technology development and science activities. To clarify the organizational bits again.
0: JPL is uh, NASA's federally funded research and development center. We call an FFRDC. So it's operated by Caltech. So JPL is actually a division of the California Institute of Technology. NASA pays Caltech a fee to operate the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for them. Both the Deep Space Network and the Near Space Network are are under the... uh, space communication and navigation organization at headquarters.
3: Now that that's out of the way, let's talk about the history of the DSN.
0: The early missions were missions to the moon and to places like Venus and Mercury. The early antennas were on the order of 26 meters and sometimes a little bit smaller. And they were meant primarily for distances to close planets. Like, that's what they did a lot in the 60s. They also got involved with the Apollo program And so we built some antennas for the Apollo program back in the late 60s and obviously those were manned missions to the moon that we operated. And I think as people got more ambitious with uh, missions like Viking Lander. And
3: the first spacecraft to successfully land on Mars.
0: And then Voyager itself. We built bigger antennas. And the, se- the 70 meter antennas are actually over 50 years old. They were the real workhorses and, and continue to be the real workhorses for deep space missions, anything out Jupiter and beyond.
3: It's hard to put the sizes of those antennas into context. When Suzanne mentions a 26-meter or a 70-meter antenna, she's referring to the diameter of the antennas. A 26-meter antenna is around 85 feet in diameter, about as wide as Rome's Trevi Fountain is tall. A 70-meter antenna is around 230 feet in diameter, almost as long as a Boeing 747 jumbo jet. Suzanne works on those large antennas, as well as the most distant mission they support, Voyager. The Voyager program consists of two robotic probes that launched in 1977 to study the outer planets Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune.
0: Well, I've been with JPL since 1984. When I went to school at Caltech and when I first started at uh, JPL, I started on the Voyager project uh, during the Uranus and Neptune encounters. And the Voyager project is still going. They just passed as 44th launch anniversary, and about 10 years ago, I was appointed to be the project manager of Voyager, as well as my role as the director for the Interplanetary Network. Voyager and the Deep Space Network are really intertwined. You can't talk about one without talking about the other, because the Voyager spacecraft, they're both in interstellar space. So to give you an example the distance from the Earth, it's uh, about 14 billion miles for Voyager 1 and 12 billion miles for Voyager 2. Um, It's the equivalent of five times the distance from Earth to Neptune. And we use the deep space network antennas to talk to Voyager. It's the furthest object that the deep space antennas communicate with.
3: To support the Voyager spacecraft in interstellar space beyond the influence of our sun may seem a complicated task, but the basic architecture of the DSN is relatively easy to understand. There are three locations, which we call complexes, that together can see pretty much the entire sky as the Earth turns. These complexes were strategically selected by JPL after looking at a wide variety of locations worldwide.
1: We have one in Madrid, Spain, one in Canberra, Australia, and one in Goldstone, California. They're geographically separated about 120 degrees apart. Uh, They're in different countries, and so obviously the the culture and the people are different, and we all need to work together. Weather is extremely different. One's in a desert, one's in a a somewhat temperate, uh, rainy area, and uh, in Australia, it's kind of in between, but they have things like wildfires down there and kangaroos, and uh, (laughs) it's it's a very different environment.
0: Each complex has one very large 70-meter antenna and then three 34-meter antennas, and that's the diameter of the antenna.
3: The development of the 70-meter antennas themselves is a great example of how the Voyager missions and the Deep Space Network are so intertwined.
0: They started as 64-meter antennas, and then they got built out to 70-meter antennas for the Uranus encounter, because Uranus was so much further out than Jupiter and Saturn. So they actually got expanded from 64 meters to 70 meters in 1986 time frame.
3: One of my favorite things to ask folks working on the DSN is to explain the scale of these enormous 70-meter antennas. Here's Suzanne's.
0: So a 70 meter antenna, we have a nice little graphic that shows it sitting inside the Rose Bowl here in Pasadena and it pretty much fits the whole
3: <laughs> you put it in
0: the middle of the field it pretty much takes up the whole stadium. So 70 meters is very big and then the 34s are like half that size.
3: But why do we need such enormous antennas? Here's Philip Baldwin again.
2: Because there's large antennas that we have. Uh, the largest being a 70 meter antenna. Uh, we're able to listen to faint signals from very, very far away. And we're talking about very faint signals. We used to use the comparison of, okay, it's like a, the power of a light bulb in your refrigerator, right? And, of course, now light bulbs are LEDs, so it's probably all different now. But back in the old days when you had the incandescent light bulb, about one watt, You can imagine transmitting that from millions of miles away and trying to get that signal.
0: The network is designed to track spacecraft that are in deep space. There's lots of different definitions of deep space, but the deep space network antennas can really track anything from about geosynchronous orbit
3: out. Geosynchronous orbit is about 22,000 miles from Earth, where many communications and weather satellites reside. The Deep Space Network is more focused on missions venturing much further afield.
1: The DSN is the conduit of data from distant spacecraft to the mission scientists uh, back here on Earth, and none of the missions would exist without it. So we communicate through radio waves, and those radio waves
3: uh, are focused by antennas on the ground. The 70 meter antennas are the largest feature of each DSN complex. They're specifically designed to detect weak radio signals from missions at the outer planets and interstellar space. We often say these antennas listen for transmissions, but as I've learned from speaking with a DSN scientist we'll hear more from later this season, the more appropriate term is SEAS. From a physics standpoint, the waves received by the Deep Space Network are no different from those received by telescopes like Hubble, James Webb, or those on Earth radio transmissions, infrared heat, and visible light from the sun are all just different types of electromagnetic radiation. It makes sense, then, that the DSN needs such large antennas to communicate with distant spacecraft. If you need an enormous optical telescope to take a picture of a distant gas giant, you'd need a similarly large radio antenna to receive a radio signal sent from a spacecraft there. But sometimes... Even the DSN's enormous antennas aren't enough. Then, the network employs an innovation called arraying.
0: Spacecraft uh, might need more than a 70 meter. It might need a 70 meter and two 34s. And so all three of those antennas will point at a spacecraft. They'll gather the data and then we will compile and put that data together into one stream. The arraying is where you take the electronic signals from each of those antennas and combine them together to get a stronger strength signal.
3: Alternately, if the 70-meter antenna is undergoing maintenance or busy with another mission, DSN ground stations can array their 34-meter antennas. So we can
1: point two or three or four antennas at one spacecraft and then digitally combine those signals. So we can create a 70-meter out of four four 34-meter antennas. That allows us some efficiency and some flexibility to handle more missions that need larger antennas.
3: After receiving data from deep space, the network guides it from spacecraft to space scientist. The first leg is from space to ground, whether that's direct to Earth or through a relay satellite orbiting Mars. Then, the data flows to one central hub. From there, it's disseminated to the missions.
0: The data will go to the central DSN processing center, which is here at JPL, and then it will get sent out all sorts of places. Whatever mission it is, they have a mission operations center somewhere. For JPL missions, that's actually at JPL, so it's quite simple, but there's missions by Goddard, there's university-sponsored missions, what, what we do at, J, at, at JPL in our processing center is we, we do what's called the level zero processing. In other words, it's the basic bits. It's not any of in the interpretation of the bits. And so the interpretation of what's there in the data, the science interpretation, is what the project mission operations centers do.
1: We now service 39 missions, and some of them are very, very new, and some of them are very old. In 1977, the two Voyager spacecraft uh, launched, and they had the, the grand tour out past the big planets so Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. And long after they, they did those flybys, those two spacecraft are still operating, and we're still tracking them today. But in the meantime, we we've, we've picked up a lot of other new missions, and some have come and gone. We're currently tracking 39, and we've got 30 more coming, which is super exciting, but it's also very daunting.
2: We do a lot of support of missions that are not NASA. There's ESA, Korea, and JAXA. It's a world-class network. And so a lot of the other agencies have modeled their systems based on DSN because it's been around so long and it's been so successful. So we've we supported them and we support other missions and the international partnership has been great.
3: The very name of this podcast speaks to the oft-overlooked nature of NASA's networks. While pieces of the Deep Space Network have been around longer than the agency itself, there's still much about the DSN that's invisible to many.
0: Sometimes I feel like we're the roads. The sexy new spacecraft get all the attention, but they they would get no data if the deep space network wasn't working. Similar to the fancy new car, it's not going to get anywhere if the roads are full of potholes. So we are definitely a critical piece of infrastructure to all the great images that you see from Mars and other planets.
3: Much as the roads we drive on every day are key to our lives, but taken for granted, the Deep Space Network is critical to our continued exploration of space. Despite its age, it's robust. It's reliable. It's trusted. As we progress through this season's six episodes, we'll meet some of the individuals that keep it so. And together, we can render the network a little less invisible. Thank you for listening. Do you want to connect with us? The Invisible Network team is collecting questions about NASA's Deep Space Network from listeners like you. We're putting together a panel of NASA experts from across the space communications and navigation community to answer your questions. If you would like to participate, navigate over to NASA Scan on Twitter or Facebook and ask your questions using the hashtag AskScan. That's at NASA Scan, N-A-S-A-S-C-A-N, on social media with the hashtag AskScan, A-S-K-S-C-A-N. This Deep Space Network-focused season of the Invisible Network debuted in summer of 2022. Developed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California, the Deep Space Network is managed by JPL with funding and strategic oversight from the Space Communications and Navigation, or SCAN, program at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., This podcast is produced by SCAN at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, with episodes written and recorded by me, Danny Baird. Editorial support is provided by Catherine Schauer and JPL's Lawrence Boccone. Our public affairs officer is Laura Bleacher. Special thanks to Fall 2021 interns Julia Addy and Nate Thomas, Barbara Addy, SCAN Policy and Strategic Communications Director, and all those who have lent their time talent, and expertise to making the Invisible Network a reality. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts of episodes, visit nasa.gov invisible. To learn more about the vital role that space communications plays in NASA's mission, visit nasa.gov scan. For more NASA podcast offerings, visit nasa.gov podcasts. There, you can check out On a Mission, the official podcast of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory.